Hello, this is Bob Groves, and welcome to the podcast series, Faculty and Research. This week, I'm, I'm really delighted to welcome Carolyn Forche, who's a university professor in the Department of English here at Georgetown. She's the director of the Lannan Readings and Talks series. She's a renowned poet and translator and has published numerous books of poetry. Her most recent book, published in March of 2019, is titled What You Have Heard is True, a Memoir of Witness and Resistance. The book recounts her experience in El Salvador leading up to the Salvadoran Civil War. Carolyn is a longtime human rights activist, particularly interested in the effect of political trauma on the poet's use of language. She's received many awards for her literary work, and her articles and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and, and other publications. Carolyn, welcome to our little podcast. It's delightful to have you here. Thank you very much. I know our listeners might be interested in beginnings, and tell us a little about your initial discoveries of your interest in poetry and, and an urge to be a poet. It began in childhood, as so many of our interests do. We have little inclinations when we're very young, something we really enjoy doing and do on our own, even when not told to or asked to by teachers or parents. And for me, it was writing. And uh, one day we were snowed in in a blizzard. I'm the eldest of seven children, and my mother had to find something to occupy us with. And she knew that I loved writing. But that day, she took a book of poetry from her shelf and said, I'd like you to try this. And she showed me the sonnet form and meters, and I was completely enchanted and wrote my first quite awful poem that day. But uh, after that, I, I knew that that's what I wanted. What I didn't know was whether that would ever be what I would be when I grew up. I didn't know that I could actually live by being a writer or uh -huh. a poet. Uh -huh. Did that urge continue through your adolescence? And yes, well, I, I used to write poems on the back of all my other papers for other disciplines. I was in 12 years of Catholic school, and the nuns taught us poetry and writing, and we had opportunities to write in school, but I was mostly completely a daydreaming artist, you know, uh, just working in the margins of math books, and so my math skills were lagging behind. And I went to the university and discovered that at that time, at least, you couldn't really major in writing, creative writing or poetry. Th those majors didn't exist yet. And so I went to a very large university, Michigan State, and it had 200 majors. So I thought, I'll find something here that I'll be able to do. And I was attracted to medicine and teaching. And so I floated around and had five different majors, something I don't recommend anyone do. But at that time, I was a, a little unmoored. And what I really wanted to do was write. And I finally entered a residential college, studied international relations, which was, as it turned out, very fortuitous for my later convergence of interests, which was human rights and literary mm -hmm. art. So I graduated with my bachelor's in that and subsequently discovered that I could earn a Master of Fine Arts degree in what I most loved, which was writing poetry. And so that was the next step for I me. And, and tell me a little more about what attracts 
you to that form. It's such a compact form of thought, dissemination, and, and literature. It's the oldest art. It's very compressed. It requires a certain kind of concentration and freedom of mind. You almost have to suspend rational thought while you're working. You apply rational thought during revision, but it's intense. I, I loved all the genres. I now write nonfiction prose, uh, and I enjoy doing it, but the great love is poetry. It's a convergence of music. It requires something of your soul. It's something that engages you as a human being fully. And I'm not saying that prose doesn't do that, but prose writers usually have to know somewhat where they are and where they're going in a prose book. You can't just wander around, and in a poem you have a little more liberty to do that. I also felt that the attention to language that's required of poetry was something that appealed to me. During the Master of Fine Arts degree, I discovered another love that I didn't know I had, and that was the love of teaching. I was given a graduate teaching assistantship, and at that time, we were put into the classroom to teach composition writing unsupervised. Uh, students who had not had great number of advantages, they were from inner city communities in Detroit and Chicago. We were at Bowling Green State University. So I was teaching the remedial students who weren't quite ready for college yet. Half the classroom were rural farming poor white people, and half the classroom were inner city black people. And they were they had divided themselves in the classroom and were sitting on two sides of the classroom when I walked in. So I announced myself as the teacher, something since I looked so young they didn't quite believe, but I told them that the first thing we were going to do was mix it up a little. So I said, you're just too divided here, and so I'm going to go out in the hall and I'll come back in 10 minutes and we'll have a different arrangement in the classroom and, and you'll have to do that, it's up to you. And they did it. They made a row between them with with representatives of the two groups in that <laughs> row. So it was really, my challenge was to get them through their final exam in comp, you know, to get them uh -huh. to be able to write standard English papers well. And so I told them, well, we're going to do it. And some of you may not make it, but if you don't, I'll work with you again. We'll try again, you know, but they did. They, most of the class made it. And that's when I realized that it was something that I could do, that I could give to others, that, and they could accomplish something. And it was so deeply gratifying that I realized that I somehow had to teach. Mm -hmm. I want to go back a little in this conversation to what you said that when you were writing poetry, it, it comes from within and it's an intense experience that isn't rational, but you need rationality at the edit so can you elaborate on that? It's a kind of meditative art and so when you're composing you follow the language. You, you, it almost feels like something else is writing it. it it's of course yourself but it's an it's a aspect of your of your mind that you're not usually in touch with. So how you school that mind has to do with your reading, your appreciation of the other arts, your sensitivity, and most importantly, your capacity to pay attention in the world, to give attention to the world, and to notice things in detail, and to study the world. And you, you bring all that into your consciousness, and then you, you suspend yourself from it, and you just allow what happens to come to the page. Usually, uh, in a, if you're in luck, 
the poem will begin almost to seem to write itself. In the revision process, you're looking at what you have done and you're noticing the connections and you're noticing where you might have made a wrong turn or where the music falls off or it's not crisp language or something like that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's where the that's where everything you learn comes into play. So your your comment just a minute ago about the need for intense attention mm -hmm. observing is so common to scholarship and in all fields at the moment you're inventing you're creating is is it conscious what observations you're bringing to the fore through the poem i think there's a kind of memory screen that that uh, holds some visual impressions and for me i'm a very imagistic writer and very visual writer so uh that has to be there teaching the act of attention is an interesting process too uh, because you can actually help students to notice that they're really maybe not paying attention by giving them a very small thing and telling them to write 500 words about it without veering from describing this small thing like a half a cup of water or it's very interesting and you say alright now I want you to notice as much as you possibly can and meditate from that but it's your, your field of vision is going to be restricted and your attention is going to be required. So we experiment a lot and once they learn how to do that, for example there's one where I, I have them imagine a room that they know well and choose three objects in the room and they have to be very particular because they're going to give those three words to another student and that student has to recreate the rest of the room and you have to say, did you choose well the details that you stimulated in the imagination of your interlocutor what that room actually looked like? And it's stunning how often it works. And then mm -hmm. they get all excited and they begin to notice the details of world everywhere. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, it's a very interesting process. So let, let me ask you one other thing with regard to the emotional inferences that the reader uh, takes from a poem. How, how intentional are layers of emotion in a poem? Or, or do you find after one is written that you discover layers of meaning that you weren't quite aware of at the moment? It's definitely the latter. It's definitely the aftermath in which those things are discovered. And, it, and they're quite startling because sometimes a reader will point them out and you, you, even, you won't even discover it yourself. A reader will say, did you notice that this poem has very images of, in, the, in my memoir, uh, it was pointed out by Hilton Alls, that there are many people in the background of my scenes weeping or crying in certain ways. And I didn't put them there. I didn't think I put them there. And he said, oh, they're there. And he began giving me a list of examples. So that's sort of what the, uh, that's the exciting part of discovering what happens in the unconscious or subconscious of, of the poet in the act of writing. There's a kind of assembly going on. And it's, I, I think it has to do with our associational capacities of mind. Uh, Jacques Melitain, the Catholic theologian, uh, talks about layers of consciousness that line up at the perfect moment for writing the poem so that you have access to all of the mind without being self-conscious about it. Mm -hmm. He has that in creative intuition in art and poetry. That's a lovely metaphor. 
I want to turn, you've, you've already mentioned it, but I want to talk a little more about your teaching and, and your own creative life and how you see those as compatible. How, how have you worked it out that you can remain, you can fulfill your passions for creating poetry and you're an instructor uh, at a university? How, how have you negotiated those two parts of your life? Well, I'm very fortunate, and I think other people could recognize this good fortune too in their own lives in that what I teach has a great deal to do with my work. And so I don't feel pulled by the energies required for the teaching. The issue is time. And I think as a young uh, poet teaching in university, I had to understand that I couldn't just drift through my days following my teaching schedule and I had to make blocks of time and, and be disciplined about how I was going to apportion the week or the day or the month. And I also had to understand, and this is a fact now, that uh, summer is not a vacation, breaks are not a vacation, even weekends are not a vacation. And if you have a, a passion, which I think is required now to feel fulfilled in a university professorship. If you have a passion, you can give those things up, you know, to a degree. And, and you can find ways to merge your working life with, with the other parts of your life. It's difficult to do for young parents, especially for young mothers. So, and I did have that period in my life when my writing slowed down and I took care of a child. But I would say that it's tough but it can be done, and a lot of patience is required too. There's a little bit of a conflict sometimes between how long a work takes, whether it's scholarly research that is then written up, or whether it's creative work, how much that takes, and it, it is sometimes in conflict with the expectations of university tenure tracks and schedules, and that's where the panic comes in. So I have, you know, I have thoughts about how we can create greater flexibility for faculty to balance these things. And you, yourself, have had a lot of ideas about that too. But there's no easy answer, and there's no one-size-fits-all. Everyone's going to be different. Some people can get up early in the morning and write every day and then go to the university and do their work. Some people need stretches of unbroken time. I have a little notebook I call my butterfly net, and I carry it around with me, a little moleskin. And I, I jot notes and thoughts I keep them in there so that I don't forget them. I'm writing in my head, you know, walking mm -hmm. around, or and I just write things down in that little notebook. I have hundreds of these now. And, um, and then I do need blocks of time, and I know that about myself. So even one day blocked will do that for me. What is your hit rate when you begin a piece of writing? Uh, how many times do you set it aside and say it's not, it's just not going Con anywhere? Constantly. I wrote four versions of this memoir before I got the version that I wanted to put into the world. The other three were not satisfactory to me, and so I, I had to let them go. They're in boxes. This fourth version finally, finally brought everything together. I wrote very, very awful poems, um, much more awful than my students are writing now when I was in college, and I like to dig those out once in a while and say, look at this. Patience is a lot of this, to, and you know how much effort you are putting in. This is another thing that I think 
we like to sometimes um, tell ourselves that outside factors are responsible for our lack of productivity or engagement. But but I, often we know we know ourselves that there's something else going on. You know that we're. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that just requires some patience because you don't exactly know what you're doing yet and you have to wait for the breakthrough and it's not all going to come at once. And it's good to seek out mentors, uh, students to seek out teachers and faculty to seek out other faculty and talk these things over, you know, and have a, a sense that great work doesn't happen overnight. It's a, it's a long process. So I want to go back to your I guess it was the Michigan State episode where you were studying international relations and I take it that was the moment that you discovered or you realized that an interest in social justice was going to be part of your life. And looking at what you've done, uh, you have put those things together. You're using your creative powers, I see, uh, towards an end. Uh, and could you reflect on that and, and give me a sense of how, how uh, Georgetown gave you the ability to put those things together? When I came to Georgetown, I had the opportunity to establish a Lannan Center. We had a wonderful support from Lannan Foundation and from all of you, and we were able to create a space for the convergence of social justice issues and literary art. And this involved a symposium, a colloquium, a visiting chair, a reading series, a tremendous activity on the campus and students who were interested both in literary art and writing and books and also in social issues could come together. And the Lannan Fellows group, which takes the seminar every spring, uh, came from all over the campus. They can be freshmen, they can be doctoral students, they can be in med school, they can be in uh, any of the sciences, and we have a lot of people from the School of Foreign Service and Government, and they're all interacting in the same classroom, taking the same class. And it's a peculiar because the freshmen are understandably nervous about being in a course with doctoral students, but it all works somehow. That has allowed me to, uh, I think, really fulfill everything I'd always dreamed about for the convergence of teaching and my own work. I wanted to, to see whether you have thoughts looking back on your career, advice you would have given the younger Carolyn at a certain point, things you now know that you don't think you knew at the time in the same way. That's an interesting question. I would have told my younger self, have faith in your work and in your passion. Don't worry about trying to find something else focus, develop a discipline, portion your time. So I would tell myself to seek more guidance. All of that contributes to your growth as an artist or a scholar. So I think for me they had to do with my personality, shyness and so on. But I think probably a lot of students feel that way and they just need to know that their faculty are there for them. Carolyn Forche, I greatly enjoyed our conversation today and I thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's really wonderful.